Hello, my name is Cezary Mik. I'm professor at the Faculty of Law and Administration at the Cardinal Stefan Wyszyński in Warsaw, in Poland, where I head the Chair of International Anti-European Law. Um, this lecture addresses the problem of whether, and, and if so, how the principle of Pacta Sunt Servanda can be extended to sources of international law other than treaties. Traditionally, Pacta Sunt Servanda is associated only with treaties. However, with move towards conceptualization of the sources of international law and the realization that rights and obligations for the subject of that law may also arise from them, the problem of the application of Pacta or analogous formulas in such cases arose. Against this background, it is worthwhile to first draw attention to the concept of sources of international law and to the principle of performing all international obligations in good faith, in order then verify its operation in relation to other than treaties sources of law. For a long time, the sources of international law were not defined, nor was a catalogue of them developed. This only happened under the influence of positivism especially at the beginning of the 20th century. Today, the term source of international law is legal, operational and doctrinal term. The doctrine distinguishes between substantive, formal and cognitive sources. In this lecture, the focus will be on the sources in the formal sense. These are seen on the one hand as, a, as the process of formation of legal rules and on the other as their product, it, it means the form of existence of international law. Today, Article 38 of the ICJ statute, according to which the Hague Court may adjudicate on the basis of conventions, custom and general principles of law, is considered one of the relevant indicators of main formal sources of international law. The catalogue of primary sources of international law is sometimes criticized. The first is related to the recognition that Article 38 does not exhaustively identify sources of law. According to the Genevieve Bastide Bureau, for instance, there may also be sources that do not retain autonomous value, but are derived from other sources of law such as binding resolutions of international organizations that are based on treaties. She calls them secondary international law, droit, uh, droit international dérivé. The other critical strand is related to the belief that law, including international law, is not binary. It is not that norms either bind or they do not, but that binding force can vary and is gradable. Furthermore, it is recognized that hard law sources, especially treaties, sometimes contain provisions that do not have a legal effect. On the other hand, it is pointed out that a number of instruments that are not formally binding, but contain, uh, contain, uh, contain re recommendations or standards, are secured through various monitoring mechanisms. As a result, the line between hard and soft is blurring both in the term of normativity and effectiveness. And the only criterion for maintaining the distinction is that claims based solely of soft, on soft instruments are in inadmissible 
in international court or arbitration proceedings. Another dilemma relates to whether in the absence of the central legislator in the, in the international community, the understanding of the source of law adopted in domestic law, according to which only those acts or norms that are general and abstract in nature should be considered sources of law can be applied to international law. In this situation, such sources would have to be distinguished from the application of the law administrative, for instance, and judicial decisions, and private law acts as contracts and unilateral acts. However, in the case of international law, the application of such a criterion is difficult. While there are claims to distinguish a group of lawmaking or constitutional treaties, and legally binding resolutions are sometimes called international legislation, this is much more difficult when it comes to other sources. Moreover, as far as treaties are concerned, it is emphasized that in international community, every treaty, even those to which a more systemic meaning is given, is transactional in nature. Aware of uh, these dilemmas, for the purposes of our lecture, I will assume that sources of law also include legally binding resolutions, unilateral acts, uh, especially of states, and finally, formally non-binding instruments, which contain, however, recommendations or standards subject to international accountability and non-judicial control. The second uh, introductory issue I would like to touch in my lecture is the duty to perform in good faith, in good faith as a fundamental principle of international law. The makers of the UN Charter decided to formulate a catalogue of its principles just after the principle of sovereign equality, Article 2, provides that all UN members shall fulfill in good faith the obligations assumed by them in accordance with the present Charter. This principle was reaffirmed in the 1970 Declaration of Principles of International Law, which is a resolution of General Assembly of the United Nations but with interpretative value in relation to the Charter. To the charter. Moreover, it considers the principles contained in the Charter to be principles of international law as such, and not only of the Charter itself. The Declaration states that the principle of good faith performance applies to all obligations stemming from treaties, customary law, and general principles of law. Unlike Article 26 of the Vienna Convention, Article 2, and the 1970 Declaration do not draw attention to the binding force of the sources of obligations, but rather to the necessity of their fulfillments. The duty to perform all obligations in good faith as a principle of international law has been reiterated in resolutions adopted by the UN uh, General Assembly composed of heads of state and government, as Millennium Declaration of 2000 or World Summit Outcome of 2005, as well as in some treaties, for example, Article 3 of the Charter of the Organization of American States. It may also be noted that, uh, put it negatively, under international law, including in particular the ILC Articles on Responsibility of States of 2001 and International Organizations 2011, 
subjects are responsible for, for the breach of any international obligation regardless of its source. This means that the duty to perform is general and independent of the source of the obligations, although the source of law can affect their validity, structure and performance. The principle of fulfillment of international obligations may be considered in this context as an argument in favor of the thesis that international obligations can be derived from any sources of international law in the same way. Let's see if this indeed uh, the case. The first problem is Pacta Sunt Servanda and legally binding resolutions of international organizations. Pacta Sunt Servanda can be primarily referred to the observance and execution of binding resolutions of international organizations. Indeed, they are not issued in, vacuum, in a vacuum, but on the basis of the organization's statutes, which are usually treaties. However, only certain international organizations, and not to the full range of their functions, can adopt the resolutions they are clearly part of hard law. Such organizations may include, first, UN and regional organizations belonging to the collective security system responsible for the maintenance and uh, restora restoration of international peace and security as defined in chapters 7 and 8 of the United Nations Charter, with the authority to apply sanctions. Second, organizations that are military alliances with respect to the taking of decisions on collective action in the sense of collective self-defense in the meaning of Article 51 of the UN, United Nations Charter, as, for instance, uh, NATO. Third, certain particular organizations of regulatory competence, especially dealing with water courses, for instance, uh, um, different river commissions, fisheries, for instance, Indian Ocean Tuna Commission or North Atlantic Salmon Conservation Organization, or an environmental protection. Four, certain international trade organizations, including commodity organizations, as, um, for instance, International Coffee Council, International Tropical Timber Council, and others. Five, fifth, on organizations using the contracting out technique, in particular ICAO, WMO, WHO, OECD, and among regional organizations, uh, for instance, the League of Arab States. And six, regional integration organizations, especially based on the European Union model. In this context, it should be noted that at times some resolutions, in particular adopted by consensus or by contracting out, are reinterpreted in the direction of international agreements. This facilitates the, the direct application of Pacta Sunt Servanda to them. When, however, a legally binding resolution is regarded as an autonomous act of an organization, the principle of Pacta Sunt Servanda is to be applied only mutatis mutandis. It means taking into account the fact that each organization has its own specific rules of organization that determine its activities, their activities. Furthermore, like treaties, legally binding resolutions are certain normative complexes of different nature. Such resolutions may contain both general and more often individual provisions. They can also generate obligations between the bodies of organization and member states, between 
member states and between them, all of them, and non-state actors. The rules of the organization may also specifically define the rules of, for the performance of obligations arising from uh, legally binding resolutions. They may even lead to an autonomous understanding of pacta over statutes and binding resolutions based on them, as in the case of the EU and some other integration, um, integration, regional integration organizations. Pacta sunt servanda and customary international law. Let's now turn to the application of Pacta sunt servanda to customary rules. It is worth starting our deliberations by quoting a short passage from two judgments of the Special Tribunal for Lebanon in cases Ayesh and El Sayed delivered in 2011. The tribunal held all states and other international legal subjects are under the obligation of uh, at international law to comply with international rules. In modern times, the old rule, Pacta sunt servanda, treaties must be complied with, goes hand in hand with the rule consuetudo est servanda, customary rules must be respected, a principle that in, in the past boiled down to restating the former principle since customary rules were held to be pacta tacita, namely tacit agreements among a plurality of states. Consequently, no state is allowed to disregard generally accepted rules of customary international law. So, in this case, the principle of consuetudo e servanda, formulated in this way, is based on a, on a simple analogy between treaties and custom. However, the closer examination of the issue shows that the application of pacta sunt servanda to customary international law may be a serious challenge. Customary law is unwritten law. Its existence and content requires evidence um, essentially based on two elements, practice and its acceptance as law, primary by states. This two-element theory of custom has been adopted in prevailing international practice as well as in the ILC conclusions on the identification of customary international law adopted in 2018. In order to demonstrate the existence of customary rule, both elements must be proved and are of equal value. Neither of them can be reduced or omitted. As the ICJ pointed out in the jurisdictional immunities of, of a state uh, of 2012, the practice and, it, and its acceptance taken together form the basis of a customary right and obligation. At the same time, however, there is a tendency in international jurisprudence to simplify the, the evidence of these elements. This is particularly related to the down, uh, downplaying the, of the importance of the practice of states as a, the, as a basis for the customary rule. Consequently, in some situations, courts, including the ICJ, are moving away from the traditional inductive method, which requires proof of the practice and its acceptance, in favor of techniques such as deduction or assertion. Stefan Salmon lists four instances where the ICJ uses the deductive method. First, 
State practice in, is non-existent because a question is too new. The case of Gulf of Maine. Second, state practice is conflicting or too disparate and thus inconclusive. The case Libya-Malta continental shelf. Third, the opinion juris of, of the states cannot be established, as in the case North Continental Shelf and Qatar-Bahrain uh, Qatar, uh, case. Four, there is a discrepancy between, the sta between state practice and opinion juris, Nicaragua case. The court should rule uh, non-liquid, yet it does not do so. Customary law is inferred from existing rules and principles of international law. General considerations concerning the function of a person or uh, an organization or mirrors ma main forms of civilization and the principal legal system, uh, systems of the world. In turn, Salmon notes uh, that the court, the ICJ, uses the method of assertion when the custom is considered notorious. Assertion is also involved when it refers to the IOC works without any ver verification of its actual nature, declares ex cathedra that a certain provision is reflective of customary international law, or builds customary rules or developing them upon its own assertions. For instance, the case of uh, territorial and maritime dispute between Nicaragua and Honduras. The use of deduction and assertion methods means that the customary rule can be established at, at, as it were a posteriori and applied in principle uh, retroactively. Meanwhile, the formal establishment of a customary rule requires not only practice but also the acceptance of the rule as binding. It should be done not in abstracto but in relation to the particular state. Undoubtedly, uh, the use of a non-inductive method to determine the existence and content of customary norm cannot be without effect on the duty to perform the obligations arising from the no that norm and the responsibility for their breach. A party to a customary obligation should know at the time of undertaking the conduct whether the rule exists, whether it is uh, to be regarded as binding, and what, is con what, what its content is in order to uh, properly perform uh, this uh, customary obligation. Moreover, the time framework of the principle of bona fide performance of customary obligations remains, remains unclear. Another problem is that uh, in the course of the formation of customary rules, states may raise their objection to being bound by them persistent objector rule. Although this is rarely applied, it is important for states to have this possibility. However, when the customary rule is based on, deductive, on deduction or assertion, such a prerogative of states is severely limited if it has any chance of occurring at all. The serious challenge Relating to customary law consists on the fact that, as uh, the ICJ ruled in, uh, 18, uh, in 1984, this between Canada and USA on maritime delimitation in the Gulf of Maine area, 
It functions not as a set of ordered and detailed rules, but rather as a compilation of general rules. As a result, while uh, rights and obligations may be inferred from customary rules as a type of correlated legal relationship, they will not be very precise. They cannot be used for solving complicated problems. Under these conditions, it is not easy to apply to customary obligations the standards of fulfilling obligations known from the Pacta Sunt Servanda applied to treaties. Since customary law does not constitute an ordered set of detailed rules, it may be difficult to answer the question of what would constitute full performance of an obligation based on customary law. The same may be true for determining whether an obligation has been duly carried out as to its content, place and manner. On the other hand, where the existence and validity of customary rule is established, the application of the performance obligation appears to some extent simpler than in the case of treaties. This is because neither the provisional application of the customary rule or, uh, nor the continuation of the obligation despite the termination of the rule comes into play here. Moreover, it would be easier to invoke the general standard of good faith or various specific prohibitions protecting the, du the duty to fulfill, including invoking domestic law to justify non-performance or various internal problems, than to establish what circumstances existing at the time of uh, the customary obligation arose have modified, radically altering um, the existing rights and obligations of the party in question, rebus sic stantibus. Summing up, it can be assumed that a duty to honor and perform customary obligation exists. It must, however, be considered taking into account the specificity of that law, the situation of the particular subject of, of law, and in the light of other obligations existing in the relevant field of international law. For this reason, principle of Pacta Sunt Servanda should not be mechanically transferred to customary law. Thus, the meaning of consuetudo es servanda is not exactly the same as Pacta Sunt Servanda. So, let's say uh, a few words about Pacta Sunt Servanda and general principles of law. The general principles of law are now fairly widely accepted as a source of international law. Principles also appear as one of the sources of international obligations referred to in Article 2 of the United Nations Charter as interpreted in the Declaration of Principles of International Law. According to Article 38 of the ICJ Statute, these are general principles recognized by civilized nations. General principles of law owe much of their vitality to international jurisprudence. However, it does not clarify the various um, ascendancies surrounding the basis of the binding force of the principles, their understanding, categories of, or functions. As of uh, 2019, these issues are also being addressed by the International Law Commission, which is preparing conclusions. In international law, it is debatable whether general principles derive only from national law. In such a case, it is problematic what test would, would have to be met for it to be a binding principle, according to which method 
they would be adopted, the common minimum, or more creatively. The challenge is uh, to ensure representativeness of legal systems and uh, regions of the world, as well as transposition of the principle into international law. The second option is that general principles are derived from international law. Then, the issue is what the generalization of the specific elements would look like in order to formulate a general principle. Regardless of their material source, general principles are to be recognized by states, civilized nations. In this context, one may wonder how the process of recognition is to take place, whether, and if so, how individual states can protest the recognition or content of a principle. At present, it is completely unclear. It is also no secret that general principles are most often demonstrated in case law, which can also give rise to certain tensions between courts and states. General principles of law constitute principles um, and are of general nature. Here again, question, questions arise as to whether principles are more standard-setting or capable of containing rules of conduct. The understanding of the generality of principles and its level is controversial. It is also debatable whether it is the substantive generality or rather generality in the scope of the subject coverage of the principle. General principles of law are seen as a source of law formally equivalent to treaties and customary law. However, their roles in the international legal order differ significantly from the former. For instance, uh, Christine um, Foyt notes that general principles can be fundamental principles which provide the foundations of the international legal system, but also constitutional principles, which include the majority of guiding principles set out in the United Nations Charter, falling, fallback principles, which consist of procedural principles and substantive principles, for instance, human dignity, non-discrimination and equality, but also good faith. The principles can be also evolutionary principles, which are divided into principles that constitute the basis for further development of treaty norms, the principles of evolutionary dynamic interpretation, and the principles which make treaty formulations dynamic. They correct the contents of treaties. And finally, they uh, can be also principles of interpretation and conflict. General principles do not, as a rule, aim to regulate international relations. In this sense, their role is subsidiary, which does not mean secondary. Most of general principles of law are not substantive rules. They cannot be autonomous source of rights and obligations. They have no capacity to generate international obligations for subject of international law on their own. If exceptionally they are substantive, they can do so only in connection with the specific normative and social environment in which they are applied. In this way, for instance, the principle of equity itself does not generate obligations, but, for instance, in the connection with the issue of delimitation of maritime zones, it can produce such obligations or better, co-shape them.
The same applies to other principles as human dignity, proportionality, or and even uh, non-discrimination. Thus, the application of the Pacta sunt servanda principle or the formula analogous to general principles of law may pose far greater problems than in the case of customary rules. The very concept of performing obligations arising from general principles of law already seems rather abstract. In their case, too, it would be highly controversial how obligations arising from principles of a general nature were to be duly performed as to the subject, manner, or time. Under these conditions, it seems that the principle pacta sunt servanda does not apply to them even in a formula adapted to their nature. Now we go to, to the problem of the relationship between pacta sunt servanda and unilateral acts or declaration of states. In addition to treaties, states may formulate unilateral acts. The problem has been recognized in the ICJ jurisprudence in the form of unilateral declarations of, by states it also became a subject of the work of the International Law Commission completed in 2006. However, while unilateral acts are important instrument um, used in the practice of states, such as recognition, renunciation, promise, protest, uh, they are still met with caution by international courts. As uh, the ICJ underlined it uh, in the uh, judgment in Nicaragua versus Colombia dispute over sovereign rights and maritime spaces in the Caribbean Sea, and raised various controversies among experts in international law. Nonetheless, the ICJ ruled in 1974 in two judgments on French nuclear test that uh, it is well recognized that declarations made by way of unilateral acts concerning legal or factual situations may have the effect of creating legal obligations. What is, uh, when it is uh, the intention of the state making the declaration that it should became, become bound according to its terms, that intention confers on declaration the character of a legal undertaking, the state being then, for, uh, then forth legally required to follow a course of conduct consistent with the declaration. The declaration must also be made publicly. The court also held in this judgment that just as uh, the very rule of pacta sunt servanda in the law of treaties is based on, is based on good faith, as also is the binding character of an international obligation assumed by unilateral declaration. Thus, interest, interested states may take cognize of uni, uni, unilateral declarations and place confidence in them and are entitled to require that the obligation thus created be respected. In 2006, the International Law Commission adopted guiding principle, principles uh, applicable to unilateral declarations of states capable of creating legal obligations. According to Principle 1, declarations publicly made and manifesting the will to be bound may have the effect of creating legal obligations. 
When the conditions for this are met, the binding character of such declarations is based on good faith. States concerned may then take them in, into considerations uh, and rely on them. Such states are entitled to require that such obligations be respected. In this context, the Commission established that first unilateral acts done publicly and with the will or intent to bind result in a, in a legal and not merely political obligations. Second, it confirmed that the basis for the binding force of a declaration is good faith. Third, and particularly important from the perspective under consideration, other states may take such declaration into account in their conduct and rely on, the, on them and thus bring claims against the state that made the declaration seeking compliance or performance of the obligations arising therefrom. However, the guiding principles do not apply to equivalent of pacta uh, sunt servanda to unilateral acts, nor uh, do they indicate the basic standard for the performance of obligations arising therefrom in the form of good faith. Nevertheless, it is worth noting that this issue arose in the course of the Commission's work. In particular, the Special Rapporteur, Victor Sedenio, proposed in the fifth report of 2002 to include Article 7 entitled Acta Sunt Servanda in the future draft. It provided any unilateral act in force shall oblige the state or states formulating it and must be implemented in good faith. In the commentary, the special rapporteur argued that the rationale for Article 7 was to indicate the basis for the binding force of acts and to ensure the stability and mutual confidence that should govern international legal relations. However, the proposal was a subject of controversy among Commission members. It ultimately uh, concluded that Article 7 would force the Commission to scrutinize every theoretical explanation as to the binding force of unilateral acts, which it considered impracticable. It was also pointed out that at the stage Acta sunt servanda could mean no more than a statement of the outer state's duty to adopt consistent conduct in respect of that act, taking into account the principle of good faith and the need to respect the level of confidence and legitimate expectations created by the act, and also bearing in mind the diversity of unilateral acts. Only an analysis of specific acts could help in this regard. Although uh, the special rapporteur still returned to the Acta Sunt Servanda idea in the subsequent reports, his proposal was not finally adopted. Criticism of Acta Sunt Servanda is also present in the doctrine. For example, Barsalu points out that uh, the, that criticism is linked to the, the difficulty of uh, distinguishing between binding and non-binding acts on the one hand, and the lack of formalism in their formulation and the difficulty of external evaluation on the other. Christian Tomuschat, on the other hand, considers that unlike treaties, Acta Sunt Servanda formulas lack uh, um, any intrinsic justi justification. 
They also lack procedural guarantees. He wrote, unilateral acts are a flexible instrument suitable to produce legal effects very swiftly. Tomuset even recognizes that unilateral acts constitute a dangerous legal device and they should be regarded within, uh, with a certain degree of mistrust. Under normal circumstances, he wrote, states prefer to regulate their international relations by agreement with their partners. The controversy over the actus and servanda formula and good faith in its application to unilateral acts stems, stems from a suspicion of such sources of international obligations as well as ne a negative assessment of the components constituting unilateral acts as, the, as uh, legally binding acts. Nonetheless, uh, it is undeniable that in the practice of international relations, certain declarations that states make are certainly binding and subject to a performance obligation. However, as noted by the uh, International Court of Justice in the judgment on jurisdiction and admissibility in armed activities on the territory of Congo of 2006, unilateral statements can create legal obligations only if it is made in clear and specific terms. The binding force should be interpreted restrictively. Unilateral declarations are not regulatory acts. On an individual basis, they specify the behavior of the states that uh, formulated them. They usually involve the imposition of an obligation. Less frequently, as in the case of a protest, they may be an expression of a right. The unilateral act, and thus the obligations arising therefrom, are unilaterally de determined by the, their authors. There is no problem of reciprocity. Nevertheless, binding unilateral acts create international obligations. They are at least bilateral and uh, may even create obligations to, international, to the international community, thus erga omnes. Anyway, on the side of the parties to which the act is addressed, they make entitlements. The parties gain a claim that the author of the unilateral act should observe and fulfill its obligation. It means it did not withdraw the recognition of the state, for instance, did not raise rights, claims, obligations on what it had waived, gave or did what he had promised. Consequently, as the IOC stated in Principle 10, they can also, under certain conditions, in particular not arbitrarily, revoke the act and thus lead to the termination of obligations. Concluding these comments, one could argue in favor of Acta Sunt Servanda. However, its nature is not comparable to Pacta Sunt Servanda. Now, a few remarks about Pacta Sunt Servanda and soft law. The concept of soft law has, has been uh, evolving in international law for some time. It encompasses a heterogeneous set of instruments such as non-legally binding agreements between states, including treaties concluded, but without the prospect of entering into force, non-binding resolutions of international organizations, 
final documents of international conferences and multi or bilateral meetings, and others. While they were initially contrasted directly with hard law, it is more contemporarily recognized that these instruments are not always different from legally binding instruments. They are sometimes expressed that in the form of articles, or in any case as regulations containing the rights and obligations of their authors. It is recognized that respecting them entails responsibility and involves the establishment of mechanisms for monitoring their observance and even soft enforcement. It is also argued, in some cases, soft law instruments are more effective than, for example, binding treaties that do not have a large number of parties or that contain normatively weak provisions. In this connection, it is argued that the binding force of legal acts is differentiated and can be gradated. gradated. Particular importance is attached to interstate agreements, for instance, codes of conduct, as well as the resolutions of international organizations setting recommended standards called recommendations. As Amerishinge points out in relation to recommendations, certain principles apply to them. The addressee has the following duties to consider the recommendation in good faith, to cooperate, to comply, to apply, this duty becomes a legal duty if it repeats a statutory obligation, to assist and finally to implement. A consequence of this approach is uh, the claim that, so, uh, that also soft law instruments generate, generate legal obligations. This is because they too can gradable. In this context, taking the diversity into account, Duncan Collis rightly argued that the basis for the binding force of soft law is rather good faith than pacta sunt servanda. Soft law instruments also give rise to the ex expectation that obligations entered into, so in, into in soft law will be observed. In the event that one accepts the, the view that soft law in the form of law, it must, however, be stipulated that it cannot be success successfully invoked on their own before international courts and or arbitrations, although um, the exclusion of legal proceedings that not, does not necessarily mean that obligation in question is not of non-legal value. Nor will uh, they give rise to consequences um, related to the determination of responsibility, including reparation obligations. In conclusion, it is difficult to automatically apply the principle of pacta sunt servanda to sources of international obligations other than treaties. It is necessary to take into account their specificities. However, the common future of all these cases is the duty to perform valid obligations. This duty really exists. Thank you for your attention.